0: Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Right, we are fantastically on time and I'm handing over to Razia Iqbal for the next session. Each of these sessions is essentially in partnership with one of our our partners, and the, this, this one, not surprisingly, is in association with the British Council. Um, Razia is the perfect person to chair this session because she's a special correspondent for the BBC. You all know her, you all see her, you all listen to her, you all watch her. And so without further ado, Razia.
1: Thanks very much, Julia. Um, I have on the panel with me today distinguished guest, Dr Anthony Seldon, Master of Wellington College. Next to him, Philippe Sands, QC, Bronwyn Maddox, Chief Foreign Commentator of the Times, and Martin Davison, Chief Executive of the British Council. When I was first asked to um, chair this session, I started thinking about the word trust quite a lot. Um, Clearly, it has to be the basis of any good relationship. And my thoughts on the subject ranged from the reputation of the English football team to the oil spill in the Gulf, and much in between. I'm hoping that this session will explore the gap between how Britain sees itself and how others see Britain. There are many who argue and make a very strong case for bigging up Britain in the world. Um, We sit on the UN Security Council. We're a nuclear power. Um, We punch above our weight, some would argue. We sit at the top table in the G8, the G20. We have that special relationship, of course. We're great at diplomacy. We used to be really good at finance, taken a massive battering recently. But there are also others who argue that we're deluding ourselves if we think that we have the kind of role that we had many, many years ago. So I'm hoping that these are the sorts of issues that we're going to be be looking at in this session. Two things are happening today in addition to this conference. The Chilcot inquiry resumes today after a break for the general election which i hope will focus the minds of the people on the panel and also the other thing that's happening today is that seven bodies of afghan of marines are being returned to britain today making the fatalities in that conflict to 20 in this month alone so i'm hoping that those two episodes those two things will allow us to think about britain's place in the world so i'm going to call on each of you to talk for five minutes only and I'm going to be really strict. I'm looking at my watch because I want I want us to be able to discuss these things but also to throw the issue out to the floor and What I'd like is not just for people to ask questions, but just if you want to just make comments, it would be really good just to have a conversation rather than constantly asking questions, expecting people to answer them. Because I'm not sure that there are answers to a lot of the issues that we're going to be talking about today. Um, I'd like to start, Bronwyn, with you, if I may. Um, what 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 do you think
0: about whether Britain can be trusted in the world? Thanks very much. It, 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 as you said, it, it comes down to this word trust, which is a very interesting one. I was reading some of the um, commentary uh, in the New York Times on, on the, uh, the BP spill, and one columnist was saying, um, was secretive behaviour, very British," uh, as this was, as this, and there were various other pejorative things, essentially meaning duplicitous, uh, un-American, um, and. It was was clear that uh, uh, to be British in that that context was synonymous with being untrustworthy. But it seems to me that that the the point where this question really has force is um, it it begins with some of the the points you've been touching on of whether Britain is claiming to be more than it actually can be. And I think that has particular force uh, in a military context and in Afghanistan where we have accepted all kinds of... um, Engagements, particularly in Helmand Province and in trying to uh, prize Afghanistan off opium poppies, that we clearly did not have the equipment or resources to do. I don't see that purely as a a problem of, 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 of British vanity, though I think that played a part. And I think British politicians in particular were very keen to accept all kinds of compliments that were going for sensitivity over Northern Ireland and so on, and accepting those compliments. Um, as relevant in in all kinds of environments where where they weren't. But um, I think it was also American uh, self-indulgence, if you like, in not not, um, acknowledging earlier that its allies did not have the forces to make good its own ambitions, and that it was going to have to fill that gap at some point itself. But clearly it has left um, certainly the Americans feeling a bit that Britain cannot be trusted in that in that domain, and I think that is something that Britain is going to have to address with its defense review of what really are its ambitions and how exactly uh, can it live up to them? What are the forces in detail that it needs to live up to those? That is an unanswered and unopened question which Afghanistan still leaves hanging there. Financial and economic reputation you talked about, and I, there I think we probably do have a better case, but it's one we're going to have to argue our way through in the next few years, uh, a claim again to, to economic management um, uh, to an economic model that works, uh, and that, that's very much in play at the moment. I, I, I was struck by a comment the Chancellor made yesterday. I hadn't expected. He, t- he pitched up at a, a Times event for business people, and someone asked him, um, to a chap from Uganda who got up and said, why, why really make this commitment to international aid, to ring-fencing international aid? And he gave a much more personal um, replied, and I, I for one, had expected, and he said, look, we've made a commitment. We, as a country, have made a commitment uh, to 0.7% of GDP. We'll go on international aid, and we have a moral commitment to honor that obligation. And it was, um, in what was otherwise a rather technical presentation, it was a very strong (coughs) assertion that Britain should be seen to be trustworthy in this particularly sensitive area of international reputation. And I will simply leave you with saying that I was uh, surprised and struck with that one. I'll stop there.
1: Ronan, thank you very much. Um, Anthony, what yeah. are your thoughts about this?
2: Okay, I, I'm sorry that I might repeat something that was said earlier at this fantastic session this morning. But we had a breakfast meeting for the launch of the Movement for Happiness uh, with Richard Layard and Jeff Morgan, And we're going to be making... Uh, Britain a much happier country and indeed a much happier world over probably the next uh, year or two. <laughs> so we're starting off with a limited ambition over breakfast. When writing this book here, Trust All Profits to Charity, uh, there were three just key things that, that came up about it. One is the difference between blind trust, uh, which is bad, and active trust, which is good. Secondly, a core distinction that will run through our debates about the difference between of uh, uh, b- being trustworthy and trusting others as a core difference. And thirdly, this sense that uh, in the past, you know, Britain was uh, really trustworthy. Uh, you know, was, uh, really had a high position of honour. There was never a golden age, uh, a- and we have to live in the real world, not in our make believe world. Just a few quibbles there about, you know, what it is we mean by trust in our title. What do we mean by Britain? Are we talking about uh, the government being trusted? Uh, the the people and also who do we mean by the world? Are we talking about the Islamic world, the non-Islamic world, America? Are we talking about the BRIC countries? Are we talking about the elites? Are we talking about the non-elites? Who exactly is doing the trusting that we're being asked? So what is trust? What is Britain? What is the world? I I hated philosophy at university because we spent all the time dissecting with these real pedants uh, the meaning of everything and I learnt nothing. I just wanted to say a word about the difference in perception of reality here. You know, and we do have, in Britain, I think, a high trust, pretty uncorrupt civil service, judiciary. I think our military is, is uh, although Afghanistan worries me, uh, as Bronwyn suggested, uh, but pretty largely uncorrupt uh, cultural in- iconic institutions, the RSC, the National Theatre, the Tate, uh, the Royal Ballet, our education system, and I'm doing a lot to try and promote. Uh, British institutions, universities and schools uh, starting up all around the world. We're opening in China uh, and in India uh, and I think we have a pretty, uh, uh, pretty uncorrupt political class, police uh, and media but uh, there's a difference between perception and reality and I think that uh, whatever trustworthiness Britain does have in the world, whatever we mean by that, what do we mean by Britain, uh, I think it has been damaged by the media uh, and I think it has been damaged by uh, appalling actions by the British government all the way from Hola, Hola camp in Kenya 50 years ago coming through uh, Iraq coming through Afghanistan and we haven't heard some of the things that happened in Afghanistan yet But we will in future and I just think to conclude here uh, that in this book I, t- I talk about the ten characteristics that build trust uh, and they are um, and the absence of these have led to the, to whatever decline in trust has been uh, the, the, the absence of a moral codes which we can agree upon, so clear principles, a clear sense of uh, belonging to something, making people feel they belong to something, a sense of, of, of we cannot continually exclude uh, large numbers of any population from economic growth is the third one. Fourth one is corporate responsibility and morality. Uh, fifthly is building consumer sorry building citizens, not consumers, which our sick education system does. Uh, sixthly, violence and fear of violence is so corrosive of trust throughout the world that we need to make uh, our citizens feel secure. Uh, seventhly, uh, rotten politicians with their integrity ratcheting up expectations never fulfilled so have political integrity. On the media, irresponsible media, uh, spreading uh, as truths uh, what they can get away with to sell uh, airspace and to sell copies has certainly corroded trust. Our education system, our universities have become factories. Uh, We have mechanized the education system uh, in Britain and it's happening around the world. That is not leading uh, to to the development of trusting people. And finally, a dehumanizing scale of life and pace of life. To have trust, we need to have uh, time uh, because trust comes out of personal relationships and relationships like love needs time and space to do that. Five minutes.
1: Perfect. Thank you very much. (laughs) Martin, Martin Davidson, um, Anthony talked about um, culture. So I'm assuming that as the head of one of our foremost cultural institutions, you're going to talk about the value of soft power.
3: I am. Um, I'm going to talk about two things. Um, first of all, does it matter whether Britain's trusted? And secondly, can you actually do anything about it? Um, and UK, like all governments, has uh, ability to exert influence in a variety of ways, through direct aid, capacity building culture and education exchanges, trade, conventional diplomacy, sanctions, armed force. Uh, a little set which we characterise as giving, helping, sh- uh, sharing, boasting, shouting and fighting. Um, and the idea of soft power, that, that sense of soft power which was, has been particularly popularised by Joe Nye, is really about the ability to affect others to obtain the outcomes you want. And you can do it in a variety of ways. You can do it through threats of coercion. sticks, you can do it through payments, the carrots, or you can do it through attraction, which is about getting other people to want what you want. And a short note to the Chancellor, if you can get others to want what you want, you save an awful lot on carrots and an awful lot on sticks. Um, And uh, that loss of trust, which uh, the others have all spoken about, is real, I don't think we necessarily need to to go into all the, the details of it, but is there something we can actually do to change it? And I think there is. And what uh, the portion of soft power, which I believe is absolutely critical, really does is two things. First of all, it maximises the attraction. Why should people in other countries be interested in and attracted to the UK? And we have got some hugely attractive aspects um, of our country. Uh, And Anthony's already pointed some of them out. Um, Our language is a huge attractor. Our education system is a huge attractor. Our cultural system is a huge attractor. Our way of life is a huge attractor in a number of different different ways. But the second thing is if you attract people to the UK, then you've got to do something with them when they're attracted. And that is about giving people opportunity. Opportunity for either personal or social or societal development through some sort of engagement with the UK. And it may be an individual wants to learn English because they want to uh, further their, their, their own income generating capacity, they may want an education system, but they may want to actually, in, uh, they might, might be much more uh, interested in how you develop the social uh, system within their own country. And there they're looking for a whole set of different interactions. So the UK has got to be able to respond to each of those uh, those, those uh, demands for opportunity from individuals. And trust is about individuals. It's not about systems. I don't think systems trust each other. I think people trust each other. Um, And you have to actually deal at the people level. Um, And I think the question has to be asked, well, can you actually do anything about it? And I think that we have uh, recently done some, some work with YouGov actually asking the question in four countries, in Saudi Arabia, Poland, China and India, about whether or not a closer engagement And development of opportunity changes people's attitudes, and the answers are actually pretty substantial. That the change in people's attitude towards the extent to which they trust the people of the UK is significantly greater. The largest shift is actually in India, where it goes up by 19%. But in Saudi Arabia, where the level of trust is at its lowest, it changes by 14%. But interestingly, also the change in the trust for country for a government is even greater than the change in trust for people. Um, So ultimately, yes does matter and yes you can do something about it. And just a short quote, you trade with people you know, you buy from people you trust and you listen to people who interest you.
1: Thank you very much indeed Martin. Philippe Sands, do you think that we're completely deluded? What's your take on whether Britain can be trusted and the nature of the relationships that we're all talking about?
4: It's probably useful if I just Uh, summarize what my perspective is on these issues and I can't add to the definitions of trust. My role in life in part is to provide advice to governments as a barrister and I only deal with interstate disputes so at any one time right now I'm acting for 15 or 20 different governments dealing directly with foreign ministers, with prime ministers, with presidents and getting a perception from those individuals of how Britain is seen, participating in international negotiations and trying to get an understanding of what it is that explains the rather extraordinary sense of affection with which Britain is held, notwithstanding a complex colonial past. Britain is very highly respected on a number of fronts. I know there are people in the room who are ambassadors and diplomats who will recognize that, for example, there are probably no diplomats in the world as a core who are more respected for their integrity, for their professionalism, for their sense of fair play, for doing things with an independence of spirit that has built up a very positive reputation uh, internationally. And I think uh, keeping those things in mind, Anthony mentioned the judiciary, lawyers, the providers of services, there is a very strong sense of respect as to what individuals are able to do, which reflects on the country as a whole. But I think one mustn't delude oneself about segueing from perceptions about particular abilities to what Britain's role in the world is. Last night, I was having dinner with a group of friends, and I was describing this event, and I said, well, my own perception is we're sort of becoming the Denmark of the operation. And someone said to be Denmark, isn't that a bit optimistic? Don't you mean Andorra?
5: And we agreed that it
4: was somewhere between Denmark and Andorra. The idea that Britain has a major role in the world is, frankly, delusional. Britain has a catalytic role. Britain has particular skills through language, through professional uh, ability, that allows it, through also its remarkable place at the intersection of relations with the United States, with the European Union, with the Commonwealth, that allows it sometimes to leverage, to influence, in ways that other countries of its size, of its limited economic power, of its limited military power, don't have. The idea, for example, in 2010 that Britain should be a permanent member of the Security Council is really preposterous. We have to call uh, a spade a spade. It's a 1945 settlement. It's a hangover and let's be realistic. You know, we prattle on about our nuclear weapons. Others will have or are in the process of acquiring it. All of this is about to change and we need to be realistic. We also need to be realistic. The, The value of the country has diminished significantly in the last 10 years in the perceptions of people of influence, in large part because these characteristics of independence, of integrity, of spirit broke down in relation, in particular, to Iraq. So I've been in a room with the president of Syria or the president of Ecuador, and the individual will say to me, well, Why is Britain doing this? We always thought that when push came to shove Britain would exercise a proper and significant influence and I think we've paid a very, very big price for uh, Iraq and everything in the post 9-11 period and I think we need to get ourselves out of our London and English media type of perceptions of where we are, step back and see how others perceive us. Yes, there's very much that is positive There's a great deal of affection, but the idea that somehow Britain is uh, out there exercising, uh, punching above its weight, as is often said, I think we should not uh, delude ourselves as to how that goes. And we should have a real sense of history and our historical perspective. And I will, as others have done, conclude with one anecdote told to me by a leading British journalist, which I think explains a part of the problem of self-delusion. A well-known journalist, known to everyone in this room, interviewed Tony Blair in late 2004, in the post-Iraq period, as Iran was coming onto the horizon, and said to the then Prime Minister, given our historical relationship with Iran, given the story of Mossadegh. How do you think we can possibly lecture Iran on what it should and should not be doing in terms of its internal governance, its acquisition of nuclear weaponry, and so on and so forth? And Blair turned to this individual and said, I'm sorry, uh, what is Mossadegh? And I think that that sort of indicates the extent to which there has been a degradation. And so long as we maintain our sense of independence, our sense of integrity, our sense of professionalism, a realistic approach to where we are, Uh, and the people that I meet are as familiar with British senses of irony, with Monty Python, as they are with Shakespeare, then I think we will be fine. But if we take ourselves too seriously, then I think we overstep the mark.
1: Thank you very much, Philippe. Bronwyn, you were nodding um, in the middle of what Philippe was saying. Do you think that his realism is, is too extreme?
0: Extreme realism? Uh, um, <laughs> no, about um, Britain's need to recognize what it can't do, if you like, though I guess out of sheer poverty it may now discover more independence from, from the US um, than it had ten years ago or felt it had ten years ago. Um, I, I, think it's, uh, I, I think Britain has to be very, very straightforward about it, what it can't do. Um, it can do some things well. It can argue, and I think will argue increasingly powerfully within Europe about how Europe should arrange itself and particularly how to address the really unresolved problems of some of the poorer members and of the Mediterranean. Um, it, it finds itself, I think, most tongue-tied now uh, uh, towards the U.S. because of the experiences of Iraq uh, and now worse, I think, uh, <laughs> Afghanistan, um, but also because America itself is changing. And in some ways one shouldn't personalize this too much. I don't think it's President Obama himself turning dramatically away from Europe, though there obviously is that uh, predisposition. But America, to me, is becoming much more introverted. Its own problems, its own enormous um, Swell of population, its preoccupation with, with Mexico, on its border. It's it's looking less to Europe, and the special relationship to me is 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 fading. It is still there, but language will take you a long way. A shared sense of history will take you a long way, but way way down on where it was 20, 30 years ago. So I, I agree. We we are, not what we were 20 years ago, and we're certainly not what we. Uh, claimed to be ten years ago, that doesn't mean we're nothing.
1: Anthony, that anecdote about Tony Blair was very, very striking. I just wonder, given what you've written about him, what what I want to try and explore is really how damaging Iraq has been, given that that is his legacy now. He'll be remembered for that more than anything else. And, and I just—it it just seems to me that to hear someone like David Miliband saying, you know, the British public have to stop punishing us for Iraq. I mean, it, it clearly has been massively damaging, hasn't it?
2: Yeah, it, yes, it, it has. I was just thinking there about—I'm um, writing a book about Gordon Brown inside Number Ten—and just to, to, to pick up on the point of ignorance, there is a senior member of, uh, of Gordon Brown's cabinet who, uh, in response to the RAF uh, saying uh, that uh, it would be very good to have some tornadoes, terribly good for morale, to have some tornadoes uh, in Afghanistan. It would really lift spirits. Uh, And this particular cabinet minister said, look, um, uh, what's a tornado? I don't know the difference between a tornado and a torpedo. Um, And he was a very senior uh, cabinet minister. There is, uh, you know, picking up the point about uh, the ignorance of Mossadegh and, uh, and the... Um, Kim Roosevelt, the, the, the CIA coup in, in, in Iraq and in, in Iran and, and so on. I mean, there's, there is a history of ignorance uh, at the top uh, uh, on the bad side. Uh, Iraq uh, you know, didn't come out of a blue sky. Um, the, 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 there were some shocking as well as some very fine things about British colonial uh, history. I think far more was positive without being too now Ferguson about it. Uh, the negative... Um, and I think Iraq was hugely damaging. Um, and um, I'm going to be very careful now with the uh, Chilcot Inquiry opening today. Uh, but, you know, their, you know, their reaction to Blair. Uh, and Blair had an opportunity on that day that he appeared to say, look, you know, under the intense inhuman pressure I was under, I screwed up on various things. Uh, but his lack of uh, uh, humanity, actually it was humanity. It was a lack of integrity and decency and authenticity. When we all knew, every single person knew that he was assembling apart from himself, uh, perpetuated the damage of Iraq as a colossal stain. But there are grounds for optimism for all of that. And by the way, there are things in, 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 in Afghanistan which will come out which will also be stains, including the whole reason. Why uh, the lack of intelligence about what the British uh, are are doing in there, and the coalition are are, are in there, and and the craven, uh, 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 the craven subservience of Hillary Clinton and indeed Obama to uh, the American public, uh, and feeding the right-wing rules uh, wolves in America with the midterm elections coming up, and the prospects. Hillary for the Supreme Court and, and New York or the presidency and so on I mean it is shocking but that's what we're talking about there are some optimism about Britain one is which we ha- we have to reiterate one is our language we you know the Danish language still less the Andorran language will not be prevalent in the world <laughs> in 2090, uh, and uh, uh, neither will Danish universities uh, or Andorran universities and look at uh, look at the, uh, the overseas uh, people who are flooding to schools like my own, to, to, to universities, and indeed uh, the current world politicians who were educated in British uh, universities. There is that. And thirdly, the legacy of that, you know, Denmark, unless I've missed part of my history, and indeed Andorra, maybe Andorra had this colossal empire that has shaped the whole world that we live in, the Andorran Empire. You probably missed that module. Uh, but, you know, uh, you, you know, it is there, and it does give us a great potential. If only we could have Honest leaders who could uh, begin with a clean sheet of paper—the potential for good in this world. The irony and sadness about Blair uh, was that he tried to do good. That's,
0: that seems grotesquely unfair on about half a dozen points. But um, to, 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 to take one of them, you talk about Obama's uh, subservience to the American voters. Yeah. Yeah, they, they picked him; they can throw him out. That's not subservience. Um, one of the things you're objecting to the British Prime Minister is you know, he did too much that you didn't like but uh, there are far fewer checks on, on him than there are say on Obama and I also find myself wincing in your anecdote about the tornado you know, I'm not going to sit here and defend ignorance but you, know, you, you weren't there I, I, I certainly wasn't you know, it seems to be, it could have been a bad joke it could have been a, a, the quite proper kind of thing a minister says with to, to some civil servant trying to get him to buy an expensive piece of kit, a, a, you know, a bad joke. And come on, explain this thing to me. Now, I, I um, well, I, I know it's
2: disingenuous like, know when journalists from the Times feel that other people have sources that, that they no, do, do, no, don't. run with well. like I often of get water. that actually. You know, that yeah. kind yeah. of professional. I can see that it's disingenuous. I'm just trying to get some a little bit of energy in here. But let me take the Obama point. Well, Why uh, is it? because we were asked for controversy. Uh, uh, the, the Obama, tell me why Obama shifted from his March uh, 09 position, which was to say we need to have a political settlement to this, uh, to then, uh, by the end to of which, 2000, to which, to uh, in, in Afghanistan, seeing that we need to talk to the Taliban, seeing that we need to get a negotiated settlement out, to believing that the surge betray us kind of settlement. Why did he shift uh, in that direction?
0: Because he thought that, the, uh, that uh, the Taliban was still in too strong a position to get to a, a negotiated settlement.
2: Ah, so you think uh, that, that that there's going to be the Taliban are going to be beaten to you? You don't think no, there's any that political.
0: at all. Co- I said. You asked me why I thought he switched, and I think he, he, so, so, he switched I, because.
4: I'm, I'm going to come in. All right. Back, go on you're, yep. You are being a bit nitpicky. I mean, let's focus on the substance of what Anthony is saying. I didn't necessarily expect myself well, he, to agree with himself. But he's nitpicking with himself. No, no, no. He, he, mm. But the thrust of what's coming across from this panel is actually pretty consistent. Is that there are things that Britain does well there are things that britain continues to be rightly highly respected for but we should not have a sense of grandeur where it is no longer justified and you're not you're not disagreeing with that i'm not I'm, at all disagreeing
0: uh, with that uh,
4: uh, and, and and the point of connection here in a sense is british us relations I, i've always thought actually a special relationship really is a, a one-way special relationship. I mean, well, you no don't one, hear a lot about no it in one Washington. No one you know, mm. in the streets of New York mm. is going on about a special relationship with the United Kingdom. Well, and are there
3: are two loathsome phrases that we've just got to get rid of. One is the special relationship, and the second one is punching above our weight. Both of them are fundamentally damaging the way in which we perceive ourselves and others perceive us. The special yeah, I relationship. I would
1: argue that people right. in the streets in London don't go around talking about the special relationship either. I mean, I think this is something that elites talk about, isn't it? I mean, it... I, I, British... Let's, English. Yeah, English British embassies. Yeah. But <laughs> let's, let's just, let's just focus a little bit on on the, the battering that BP has taken, because I think it will be interesting, rather than talking always in generalities, let's focus on this particular issue. The two other companies that are involved are American, Transocean and Halliburton. You're not really hearing very much about it. Is the media not doing enough? Why aren't they saying, hang on a second, this is going to affect American investors just as much as British investors. This is affecting no. American pensioners just as much as British pensioners.
4: There just seems but, but, Roger, to be some sort a, of... the same thing happened with Exxon Valdez. I mean, Exxon Valdez happened to be the company that chartered the vessel, but they weren't the owners of the vessel. They weren't the people who actually hired the pilot of the ship. You've just... I, I think that is, in a sense, overwhelming. I don't think the focus on BP, because it happens to be British, is really the heart of the story. You just focus on the major corporate entity that is in the public image as responsible for the decision to put that rig in that location and carry out that activity. So I, I, don't, I don't think that's emblematic of something that is different. I think what is interesting in this conversation is what it sheds light on in terms of Britain's perception of, with which parts of the world it relates. And one of the curiosities of the coalition agreement that no one has homed in on is if you look at the section on foreign relations at about page 24 or something, they go through the new indicators of governing principles on Britain's foreign relations. Two points. Firstly, the U.S. comes way down and barely even gets a mention.
1: Doesn't India come up fairly hard?
4: India yeah. all of a sudden we're going to build a special relationship with India so I'm thinking who well so where did that come from I mean who put that into the uh, coalition agreement and why all of a sudden is there now a focus I don't know if there's anyone here from India but what, where did that come from and what does that say about the last 10 years and also the fact that no one has commented on
6: I yeah, that I, think that hasn't I think it comes from George Osborne,
0: it. who's um, very much taken with saying these days, has anyone noticed we have more trade with Ireland than with India? Um, and, and I think it, it, it represents um, an aspiration. So why is um, Ireland in that, but I think well, it also <laughs> comes from something
3: else, which is, is rather important, which is a shift over the, the previous 10 years, which is to say there are some long-standing, critically important relationships around the world for the UK, which we have tended to ignore and we've underplayed. So we have put a huge amount of effort into China and ignored the fact that we have a relationship with India, which is over uh, several centuries. Okay. Um, and that we have, <coughs> I think one of the things around the, this, this, this emphasis on, on maintaining the aid bu- budget is about a sense that we have a set of relationships which you have to invest in. And, those, and that investment can, can, can uh, provide a dividend. And I think part of the problem that we have in all this sense about looking around the world and asking the question, where are our friends, is we assume that nothing actually changes. Mm -hmm. Um, The truth of the matter is that you actually have to constantly reinvest generation after generation in those relationships. Um, We aren't actually investing in in the United States in anything like enough because we assume that the United States is still run from the the, uh, northeast, whereas, in fact, the entire demographic and political uh, emphasis in the States is moving very sharply Mm -hmm. south and west. And we don't seem to have really taken that on board in terms of how we think about the U.S. And you know, it's not perhaps by mistake that the, the, the parts of the country which have been most affected by PP are precisely those areas which have grown in terms of importance.
1: We've got just over half an hour before we have to finish, and I want to give at least 20, 25 minutes to the audience. But before we do that, Anthony, two things that you said. You talked about security that want two of the ten points that you made about how we achieve trust security but also earlier you mentioned you know who is it that we're talking about who is it who is doing the trusting and who is trustworthy who is who's not doing the trusting anymore let's look at the islamic world since we talked about how damaging iraq has been i want to just explore a little bit the relationship between britain and Muslims around the world and Britain and you know the relationship between British Muslims and their place in this society and how that affects our security and how it affects security in the world Philippe?
4: I I mean as as you were putting that question around I I was making the connection again and we've probably overstated it between on the one hand the Iraq issue on which there seems to be a a broad consensus emerging and secondly the site of Tony Blair prancing around the world as a so-called special envoy, trying to sort out Middle East processes. Now, I happen to do quite a lot of work for Arab governments. They, all of the ones that I deal with, just want him off the scene because he is not perceived as an honest broker. It comes back to what I said at the beginning. If you, if you were to transport yourselves into an intergovernmental negotiation, you'll very often see that it is a British diplomat or a British legal adviser to the Foreign Office who's drafted in to try to broker the deal between warring factions on the negotiation of a text. And that is because the individuals, rather than the country, are perceived to act fairly and independently and professionally and with integrity and not to play games. And I think that the restoration of the loss of trust that has happened in vast parts of the world, that world that you have just described, the Muslim world, the Islamic world, will come when Britain takes steps to restore that sense of integrity. I mean, it's not that Britain is universally loved. We have a history, and Anthony has mentioned it, and Bronwyn is acutely aware of it, and Martin's acutely aware of it, but the curiosity that I find in the work that I do, is there is a very deep well of affection for Britain. I can't do the job, I couldn't do the job that I do, acting for these governments as an American. It's been made very clear to me time and time again, because America is perceived to be too threatening, whereas Britain is not. And although there is anger in that part of the Muslim and Islamic world towards what has happened, there remains a very strong sense of affection that I find curious, but which I think is positive.
1: It's, it's interesting you say that people in the Arab world do, you know, have, just want Tony Blair off the scene, and yet he continues to present himself as somebody just most recently as being solely responsible for having modified the, the blockade it, on Gaza. It's just
4: ridiculous. I was saying to you beforehand, go and spend a couple of nights at the American Colony Hotel in Jerusalem. He has taken the whole top floor, okay, of that fine establishment. And if you sit in the courtyard of it and speak to people who work there and speak to people who are also engaged in the same activities that he is engaged in, if you speak to British ambassadors, he he is part of the problem, not part of the solution. And there needs to be a double step, quick rethink to (laughs) re-engage with those parts of the British foreign policy and political establishment. That are able to connect in a way that he isn't able to do. And you've written about this, Andy. I mean, the money thing is a serious problem. You know, when you have someone like that who's going off from the American colony, who won't set foot in Gaza, and who then goes off to be paid £240,000 uh, in China for a three minute speech, it doesn't help build trust. Let's put it like that.
2: Yeah, but I wish, you, I, wish I knew what the secret was.
4: To, to what?
2: Well, to earning, to earning, um, te- <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, okay, I mean, at the end of, at the end of the day, i just say that I, I am an optimist here. I'm an optimist about the world, and I'm, opt- I'm an optimist about Britain's position in the world. And if good can come out of uh, Iraq, uh, if we can somehow reestablish uh, the, that we don't have this point that we don't have a, uh, a, a selfish interest in the world. That, that there is something benign about uh, Britain. Uh, if we can somehow modify uh, militant evangelical Christianity, so that uh, we can become more tolerant, more accepting of uh, other countries, there is much in our culture, in our traditions, in our society, in yeah. our universities, in our BBC, our British Council, education system, which could be a force for the good precisely because the English language is so prevalent in the world uh, that uh, we should be optimistic. I don't want to be uh, pessimistic, would be my sense, for trust in the world. We still have a role to play, which I think is above our weight.
4: And no one's mentioned humor. Yes, of course. Yeah. No one has mentioned humor. In, you'd be amazed in these tense intergovernmental negotiations and these bilateral relationships. <laughs> a sense of humor is an incredibly important tool, and the British are very good at doing humour in complex, tense, difficult situations. And that's about language, yeah. and it's about cultural understanding.
2: totally agree, and no-one's mentioned it for the last three years because we've had Gordon Brown in charge of it. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
6: well,
0: they make jokes about, I remember on, on Jack Straws actually marvellous joke to the UN Security yeah. Council a particularly tense yeah. bit yeah. Uh, of debate and saying, well, well, I come from an old country too, invaded by the French in 1066. Um, and it, it diffused, sort of, a difficult moment. And the, and the adoration of many Afghans for Mr. Bean is, um, <laughs> is, 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 is impossible to set aside. May I just make one, one general point? Because I think we, 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 we you know, in Britain and America and, and a lot of Europe are obviously countries that believe in the rule of law um, and, and believe that international relations should be governed as much as possible by laws and rules and frameworks. And much of the world doesn't agree with that. And it matters for this, our point of view, uh, in trying to persuade other countries to come within that, that these countries have come uh, that we and others have come out of this recession with so much debt and that many of the people, or maybe the governments, we are trying to persuade of the virtue of our way of seeing things have come out of it so financially strong, I'm thinking particularly uh, of China. And we are... We are it's, it's not a coincidence we're having this debate at this point. We are arguing for our way of, of dealing with the world, which I, I believe is the right way, at a point of weakness. I'm not a, I'm not a pessimist on this. But we have no money, <laughs> nor does the US, uh, nor does much of Europe. And one of the ways that we have tried to persuade other countries in the past, I don't mean it as a cynical point, but tried to persuade them to come within our way of, of dealing with things, is to offer them money. One of the reasons Copenhagen failed so spectacularly was that the US refused in the end to hand over the vast sums in technology and and cash in a sense that China was implicitly asking. Uh, And I think we have to recognize that this isn't simply a question of the personality of our leaders or even of recent wars, but also that the, 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 the legacy of these wars which shaped the first half of the last decade is also fused with the past two years of financial crisis. We're arguing for this, for our way of thinking, at at, at a point of weakness, and we have to take that into account.
1: Martin, you're you're nodding away.
3: Yeah, um, just uh, um, even more bizarre than uh, Afghanistan's affection for Mr. Bean is Albania's affection for Norman Wisdom, but uh, (laughs) humour has many, uh, many directions. Um, I think you do have to go back to the question, why does it matter? Um, And really, the... It has to be around the issues of what is going to take forward the prosperity, sustainability, and security of this country. Um, And it matters because our prosperity, um, probably more than any other country in the world, we are engaged with the rest of the world, whether it is through trade, economy, politically, et cetera, et cetera. and the fact that the big issues of the world are not going to be solved by us alone, but are going to affect us massively, uh, whether that is climate change or pandemic uh, disease or whatever else it might be. So it actually matters because we want other people to want the same things we do and want to find similar solutions to the ones that we want to find. And we want to be able to continue to develop the prosperity and the security and the sustainability of our own society within a more prosperous and sustainable world. So these things do actually matter, and I think there's a danger that we tend to focus on, on very, very narrow short-term things. You know, frankly, I've no idea what the long-term impact of BP in the Gulf is going to be. It's far too up here for us to be able to really analyze that. And even Iraq, to an extent, is, um, is, is, is very close. And those issues of trust, I think, work out over much longer terms than simply a few weeks or, or even a couple of years. It was very interesting. I was in uh, Bucharest at a European meeting the other day uh, when the, the Southern Inquiry reported. Um, and I can't, there must have been probably three-quarters of the European diplomats who were there, whose one reaction was no other country would actually go through that to actually present a, a story which in many ways is very negative, very damaging, but which actually is part of trying to find a, 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 a lasting solution. So there are remarkable ways in which we operate, which are incredibly attractive to people. And that's why we must break away from this idea of our weight and punching either above or below it. Um, Because we tend to then underestimate what is attractive about us. And we tend to overemphasize, actually, the things which are least attractive about us.
1: Very good point at which to open the questions or comments to the floor. Please um, say who you are, if you want to, before you put your comment or question.
5: Um, Sandy Walkington, two quick comments. First of all, is there a shared consensus? I didn't get it from the panel as to what public diplomacy can achieve. Is there an idea of public diplomacy? And I mean, Anthony mentioned the BBC very briefly, but nobody else mentioned the BBC. And the BBC World Service seems to me to be something which is, in my um, understanding, immensely powerful around the world and much more listened to than any other global media. And the next comment. We can sit here and be all very pleased everybody comes to England and speaks English. But what's happening to language teaching in this country apart from in schools like Antony's? And there comes a stage when we simply can't understand and therefore can't empathize and can't communicate because we're totally unable to talk in any other language except our own. And the teaching of English and the take up of languages is simply woeful.
1: The gentleman just there.
5: My name's William French. Um, another question relating to the point just made about the Savile Inquiry. It struck me the earlier comments about trust in British institutions, in the judiciary and the military, is something that has historically not necessarily been shared in parts of the north of Ireland and the south of Ireland. And I wondered what you thought the Saville Inquiry shows about... Britain's capacity to examine and attempt to address
6: previous mistakes also in light of the Chilcot inquiry ongoing. Neil Stewart from uh, Policy Review. I mean I I take it I think from your comments people would accept that uh, Britain's worldwide military brand is broken uh, and there's an extremely painful argument going on about how it's finally Settled, reconciled, who's blamed, etc. Um, Other bits of Britain's brand um, have been a bit more damaged. We were talking about the city earlier today. I've been very struck by the failure of the commentariat in the UK to reflect the venom that I hear when I go to the States and onto the continent. Because in the States, you know, they think that a lot of their banks that were uh, pulling fast rogue capitalist strokes. We're doing it through London. And the French and the Germans and others blame a lot of the London branches of their banks. So I think there's a big trust issue there. I think on law and judiciary, I think Britain's trust and standing is very high. And on culture and education, um, it seems to me to be almost unstoppable. No matter how high they put the fees, people still want to come uh, to British universities. They still want to engage with British youth culture. Um, It still travels, it's tolerant. Uh, I drove up the Edgware Road the other night. It's attractive to generation after generation and is able to promote itself almost regardless of any other spats that we get into. And as people keep reminding us, whatever else, uh, London is also still the sixth biggest uh, French city uh, in Europe and that must tell us a story. Finally finally English now as you can tell English is a second language for me Um, I didn't really start talking until I went to university However, I do a huge number of conferences uh, for the universities in the UK Um, You have to get off thinking that English is going to get us through in the competitive international environment the Midwest American universities are wakening up and opening their doors to the world. The elites of most of the modern Commonwealth countries speak English, and the French and Germans have simply looked around and said, if the international market wants to speak English, we'll teach our courses in English at German and French institutions, much to the annoyance of their governments. And finally, uh, you know, 15-year-olds in Denmark and Sweden as Sandy was saying, often speak and write and do grammar and English better than some that we manage to produce from our own schools. So don't hang your hat on English in the long term to get us out of the scrapes.
1: Before we get any more questions, let's just have some comments. Anthony, there's quite a lot there about education. Uh,
6: well, I
2: mean, just picking up there on a mixture of what Stanley, William, and Neil were saying, if I've got their points right, uh, about what can we do, uh, four quick things. One is, Successive prime ministers with the foreign office since Margaret Thatcher, less or so Major, definitely Blair, uh, definitely Brown, had a contempt for our foreign office, uh, despite uh, the praise we've heard for uh, the, uh, the, the, the positive reception that our diplomatic service has abroad. Now that uh, we have to start honouring uh, uh, again our, our British diplomatic service and our foreign office, and stop marginalising it because British prime ministers uh, don't like what they hear. Um, That's a major goal. Secondly, uh, British universities, British cultural institutions and schools need to set up abroad, need to to realize that American, Australian, uh, French institutions, the Sorbonne uh, and many others are moving into the UAE, they're moving uh, across the world. There's a kind of, uh, of, of stasis here in our institutions. Our universities are terribly slow. I've got a, another conference in November trying to get them to set up abroad. They need to be doing this and they're slow about it. Thirdly, language teaching is very bad in schools. It's because of, it's because of the factory system we have in education that squeezes out anything you can't get easy passes in. And it's hard, you know, to get passes in in, in languages. It's particularly hard to pass in Mandarin. Um, you realise this is shocking. It is uh, the same standard. You have to be the same standard in Mandarin if you are English-speaking than if you've come from Mandarin. So the boards say, well, lots of people get A stars. Everyone who gets A stars uh, learnt the subject, uh, uh, learnt it uh, uh, from the cradle. It's very hard. We need to uh, dramatically revolutionize. The British Council could do a lot to help us here. And fourthly, we need to have uh, a much clearer sense about what the British objective is. There is a great authority. There's a great need for uh, British culture, sanity, uh, fairness, uh, tolerance in the world. There is a really major role for Britain, and British values, and British philosophy, and thinking, and education. Uh, in the 21st century. We need to restate it. We need to stop having the boring defence reviews that prove absolutely nothing. And we can use the Olympics as, which we haven't, another thing we haven't mentioned so far, as that springboard for this new uh, values-based reassertion of everything that's good. And we can be very proud of, the world can too. By the way, they're not British values, they're human values.
3: Martin. Um, I think of the question of language. The danger is that we could become the sole monolingual country in the world um, if we do not do something about it and do something about it very, very quickly. And it matters. Not because uh, other people will not be learning English. Of course they will be. Um, But because we do not educate our young people to engage with people from other cultures in anything like an effective way. There is something like a 10 to 15 to 1 mismatch between the number of foreign students studying in this country and the number of British students studying overseas and that is an extremely generous uh, calculation of the number of British students overseas. Um, And one of the least attractive things for people overseas is that that our young people do not seem to be interested in them. They don't want to engage with them. They don't want to go out and learn their languages or study there. I had an extremely embarrassing conversation with the uh, Mexican Minister of Foreign Affairs the other day who Mexico offers scholarships for young British students which will pay all the fees, all the living costs and the fares to get to Mexico. Last year, one person in the UK applied for them. And the other uh, critical issue for us, it seems to me, is the assumption that uh, students will continue to come to the UK willy-nilly. Well, they won't if we don't give them visas. And one of the great dangers that we've got is that we will actually restrict the flow of students through our new visa regime. And secondly, People are looking for education engagement in a whole host of different ways. I agree absolutely with Anthony. Um, Student uh, universities setting up, engaging overseas, working with foreign universities is going to be absolutely critical. We can't assume that that flow will continue forever. Um, It has to be invested in, it will change, the world changes, and at the moment we are actually incredibly complacent, I believe, in both our education and our cultural engagement around the world. Others are doing better than we are.
1: More questions? It's not a question. It's
4: a point. We've talked about India, China, Iran, perhaps touched on the Middle East, maybe even Africa. Somebody mentioned Mexico, but very, it's very obvious when you travel around the world, as I do, that a place where UK-based firms, with four or five exceptions, are not, is South America. And it's a very, actually a very stable, very prosperous place. Brazil is an enormously important country in the world probably and we're simply not there, although every Brazilian is educated, listens to the BBC and, you know, very keen, would love us to be there, simply not. Philip. I want to come back to the question about, about the BBC. The BBC is hugely, hugely important. The only way you can reach 300 million people at a stroke is to give an interview on BBC Hour, and it is listened to, and I've seen that in the work that I do. One of the very first cases I was involved in was in Albania, uh, just after Enver Hoxha had been uh, overthrown, and I met a young uh, Albanian who, who spoke absolutely perfect English, and I said to him, how, how did you learn English? And he said, well, it's very simple. It was banned, but my father and I used to hide under his bed um, for years and years and years, and we would listen to the World Service, and we learned English in that way. And they should be, we should be throwing money at the World Service and not taking money away. I also want to come back to the point that was, and it's the same in South America. I mean, if you go to Argentina and to Ecuador uh, and to Chile and other places, the World Service is listened to, is trusted, and resonates in a way that no other uh, media service from around the world uh, is is able to do. Someone said something about the Savile Inquiry, and it is true. I mean, it, it, it took 40 years, so let's not, get too excited about <laughs> our ability to do uh, justice in a timely way. But the Savile the Inquiry, of course, is mirrored by the Chilcot Inquiry. And the number of times I've had a senior government official say to me, who is this man, Chilcot? Who are these people? Because everyone is interested in this process. And they're struck by the very British way in which this inquiry takes place. I mean, it's only in a British inquiry that you would have someone like uh, Baroness Prakash or others who would begin every single question by saying, I'm sure this is a ridiculous question, and I'm sure there's a very simple answer, (laughs) uh, but I'm still going to ask the question. And people are curious about it. The proof will be in the pudding as to what they actually say and do. But the process of publicly going through a prime minister, a former prime minister coming forward, I think is significant, is impressive, uh, and it has been done in a very uh, accessible way. So these are ways in which Britain does things that I think do resonate uh, in other parts of the world. And I think it goes to a sense of independence of spirit. I, I like to tell the anecdote of how proud I am of the fact that I live in a country in which I can write a book that is extremely rude about a serving British prime minister and a serving foreign secretary, make allegations that get pretty close to complicity in war crimes and torture, and then you're hired by the Foreign Office to do the internal human rights training for the British government. And that is what is different about Britain from so many other countries, and it's a great thing, and we mustn't lose that, and it's respected.
0: Yeah, yeah, Brown. yes, of course. Quickly, and I I, um, enjoyed all these points about language um, training. The most excruciating trip I ever took with a politician was with Gordon Brown when he was still chancellor to China, and he went around explaining to the Chinese that Britain was going to make really quite a lot of money out of teaching them English, and the Chinese replied in perfect English that they were quite good at teaching themselves English these days. (laughs) Um, the trip got worse. He then lectured them on raising the minimum wage to make it fairer for Britain to compete. <laughs> um, but uh, no, no point. I think we can overestimate the value of England. On the other hand, in all this uh, kind of berating of our language skills, which I uh, join in on, I, um, this still, to me, does not feel like a parochial country. You know, British people travel. Uh, they have people here. There other, we may be doing much worse than, than, than some countries, but we're doing a lot better than some others. Uh, I, I don't meet a lot of British people who do not... Feel in one bit fearful about not only going to work in another country but going to uh, live and retire there for forever uh, there isn't always the magnetic homing instinct that you get in some countries where uh, beyond a certain age you, you' felt you must you must return back and I think it is to our credit it still feels to me in many ways like an expansive country. I take the point about about um, about foreign students though absolutely on the inquiries um, absolutely. Moving uh, defense of uh, the Philippe's given, which I, I share, except um, I think you have to wince that in a kind of modern country there aren't clearer powers to summon people, um, to uh, demand documents, uh, to conduct this process within a set time, um, that, that, that every question must be asked by a lord, it seems, and every panel headed by a lord. It, it makes it quaint and harder um, to me to. Um, trust the, 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 the rigor of the, the process. Um, compared, for example, to the sometimes over-ferocious congressional inquiries in the, in the US, but at least have the, the power to grind on and get what they want. More comments.
5: Paul Rayburn from Fishbone Hedges. Um, with apologies for bringing it back to the special relationship just quickly. Um, President Obama, possibly at best, has no great affection for Britain, and at worst, lingering mistrust, perhaps. Um, is that at all significant, um, either for our relationship with the US or a, a more widely around the world, i.e., do other countries perhaps not along to that sort, of, uh, that sort of caricature?
1: Let's take two or three before we go back to the panel so we can get more, more voices in. Gentleman in the pink shirt, followed by the lady who's got her hand up there.
7: Thank you. Arion Krasnicki from the Embassy of Kosovo. Um, last week, uh, Embassy of Kosovo, Uh, Last week, Henry Kissinger, the renowned American diplomat, said that America and its allies should stop focusing on the exit when it comes to Afghanistan. Instead, they should try and come up with a viable solution. In this context, will too much emphasis on the exit strategy jeopardize the trust when it comes to such military actions? In Imke Hinkel, Focus Magazine, and I find it quite extraordinary and remarkable and fulfilling exit British cliché that you're talking about Britain's role in the world and Europe only comes up very, very fleetingly in the mentioning of France or I think, not even Germany. Do you seriously believe that Britain plays in the world a more important role as France, for example, or as Germany as single countries, or indeed as a European uh, Union as a total? And where actually do you see the British um, role within the European Union or as a player within the European Union? And maybe very briefly on, on the learning foreign languages, which, which always strikes me and again as quite remarkable. The training actually that the FCO officials have in foreign languages seems to me indeed the best in the world. It's, absolutely extraordinary how well they're trained in languages, how brilliant they are in languages, and that, for example, is far, far better than, indeed, what happens in France or Germany, for example, or in other countries, than about America, but probably as well.
1: Sorry, the lady here in the front. Um, just two
0: points. I do international recruitment and there are some British companies out in, uh, in South America. Uh, I had to put two parallel shortlists together, competing against an American firm for um, an organisation based out in Latin America, and uh, the, the Brits, all four on the shortlist and it was down to their ability to facilitate um, and for their honesty integrity and how they came across that exactly to your point about the facilitation um, ability the other point about languages is um, we do quite a lot of graduate recruitment and I think one of the reasons we're not great at encouraging our youngsters to learn languages is because there aren't jobs with languages when they come out of university going back to my shortlist in Latin America there were people that came with A-level, really good A-level results and possibly degrees in uh, modern languages Um, that hadn't used them in their first jobs. we're very, very willing to go over to Latin America and relearn their Spanish and Portuguese, but they just hadn't had the facility to use their languages in their first job.
1: Thank you very much. So US-Britain relationship again, Britain-Europe, Britain-France, and what was the other one? Um, I can't remember.
0: Afghanistan, yes, exit strategy. Who wants to go first? I I wouldn't um, myself put too much weight on what President Obama doesn't like or doesn't feel personally. Uh, people have read his autobiographies passing them for, for kind of nuances about what he feels about Britain. Um, but you get this from many countries. You know, the Japanese say oh, President Obama doesn't like us very much at all and, and uh, the Israelis are have rather a lot to say on it. Um, and it, it, Cooler in some ways but also to me it comes back to what is happening to America. That I, I, I think if it wasn't him it would be the next one who just pulled away from it's not just Britain, it's not just Europe, but, uh, but old allies. Old allies set uh, in the aftermath of the Second World War, and but just began to look in other directions uh, too, I think. So I think some of it is, is bigger than the guy who happens to be in the White House at this, at, at this, this time. The Afghan exit, um, is an excellent question. Um, but if there were an obvious solution that could be crafted, it would be easier to, uh, for anyone to give you an answer. Um, The fact that there isn't is why people are talking now so painfully about an exit. Um, And yes, inevitably, if the US and Britain leave um, with um, Afghanistan still in a very tense and unsettled state, as seems most likely, um, then that will affect how they are are trusted in the future, Um, inevitably. But I'm not sure there's going to be an alternative to that. It It is such a difficult... A predicament and all the kind of moves we're hearing at the moment about, about deals with the Taliban, about Pakistan trying to bring in its own Taliban, only, only strengthen my, my feeling about that. The last one about, 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 about Europe. Um, no, I mean, we're here discussing Britain's role in, you know, in the world. No one's saying it's... Uh, it would be hard to argue that it, it was... Um, had a bigger footprint on the planet in any sense than the European Union as a whole. And yet it does speak with a different voice and, and a, you know, a very distinct voice within Europe. Um, as, as the eurozone crisis has showed and so um, I don't think in any way our discussions contradicted what you're, you're saying but to me um, it, it, um, it's entirely legitimate to discuss Britain separate from the rest of Europe because in a lot of these, these points we're talking about this morning uh, it does act separately from Europe
4: I, I agree with much of, of what Bronwyn has said actually I, maybe a slight difference of emphasis on Obama I think it matters that his father was Kenyan and that he grew up in Hawaii because I think his global view is a different view from someone who grows up in Kennebunkport uh, uh, on the northeast coast of the United States, just as (coughs) your or my view will be deeply influenced by uh, the people we came into contact with at that early stage of our lives. And there's been much written about the impact of his relationship with his father on his perceptions Uh, of the United Kingdom. And I I don't think one can completely exclude that. I think Bronwyn is right. I don't think he's anti-British any more than he's anti-Japanese or anti-Israeli. But his world view is undoubtedly different, and it is informed by his own family background. And in that scheme of things, Britain occupies a particular uh, and probably more uh, limited place. And certainly he doesn't think there's such a thing uh, as a... Uh, special relationship, uh, and I think that is, is one point that we, that we all agree on. I mean the exit seems to be the only viable solution, and I think the misassumption in your question, if I may say, is that um, there is some other viable solution. I've long believed that, that that there isn't, and the sooner that we get out, the better. Um, the only reason we should have gone in was to stop that territory being used as a base for attacks on our territory. That was achieved long ago. Afghanistan does not today pose a threat to our territory. We have no right to be there whatsoever. We should get out instantaneously. Time is not going to improve uh, the situation. I think the question about Europe was hugely important, actually. I mean It was very telling, uh, and it was a a, a two-pronged question in a sense. It's silly to suggest that Britain is more important than France or Germany. There are fundamental differences and language and sense of humor, I would say, are part of the element (laughs) that have come into it, but you only need to spend time in an intergovernmental negotiation at the European level or at the multinational UN climate change level to see, you know, that Britain's role is not uh, any different and if anything Germany has a much more uh, significant clout now mm. on a whole raft of issues which comes back to the point that I made, our position on the Security Council and France's position on the Security Council in 2010 uh, I think is an absurdity I think Bronwyn is right we do speak with a different voice for lots of complex reasons within the European Union but that is a different issue and I don't think it's necessarily a, a bad issue there's one final point that we haven't mention, that I think is worth bringing into this debate. Multiculturalism. It's a great strength that we have, and I think we understate it and underplay it.
1: Thank you very much. I'm very sorry to all those people who still had their hands up. We've completely run out of time. We could go on for at least another hour, I'm certain. Um, And I'm not even going to come up with any concluding remarks, because we've run out of time completely. So my thanks to Dr. Anthony Seldon, Philippe Sands, Bronwyn Maddox, and Martin Davidson, and to you, thank you very much.